standing at the gas leak in the street and we heard this loud noise of a plane coming overhead. And what happens is you never hear planes in Manhattan because of the tall buildings. And we see this plane streak past us. And then I saw the plane aim and crash into the World Trade Center. And at 8.46 that morning, we knew that all our lives were gonna change, that we were going to the biggest fire of our lives. Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. This episode, though, is just a little different. My guest is Chief Joseph Pfeiffer of the New York City Fire Department. On September 11th, 2001, he was a battalion chief among the very first firefighters on site after the first plane hit the World Trade Center. His story from that day and what we can learn from it about leadership under stress, decision-making in a crisis, the parallels with some of the combat stories we feature are really remarkable. Before we get to the conversation with Chief Pfeiffer, a couple really quick notes. First, if you're not following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It's a great way of staying up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Chief Joseph Pfeiffer. Chief Pfeiffer, thanks for joining us for an episode of The Spear. As listeners know, The Spear is uh, our podcast about the combat experience. This episode is a little different than all of our others, mainly because you're not in the military. Uh, You've spent your career with the New York City Fire Department, but the story you're going to share from 9-11, you know, it has some remarkably similar features uh, to those of the stories of combat that we often discuss. Aspects of leadership, decision-making under stress, for example. Uh, To start, though, can can you just share a little bit about your background in the Fire Department? I I grew up in the Fire Department. I started as a firefighter and worked my way up through the ranks of lieutenant and captain, then to battalion chief, and battalion chief was the rank I was in on 9-11. And then I I got promoted a few times after that to to assistant chief, which is my present rank, and I'm the chief of counterterrorism and emergency preparedness for the New York City Fire Department. And that's a a three-star chief. So you were a battalion chief on 9-11. Can you talk about what happened that morning? Uh, how did you find out about the attack? Yeah, as a battalion chief, I was working in, in Lower Manhattan, and I actually worked the night before. And that morning was like any morning in the, in the firehouse. People were cooking cooking breakfast, and we were talking around the, uh, the kitchen table. And, and then we were called to, to a gas leak in the street. And we were standing at the gas leak in the street, and we heard this loud noise of a plane coming overhead. And what happens is you never hear planes in Manhattan because of the tall buildings. And we see this plane streak past us. And then I saw the plane aim 
and crash into the World Trade Center. And we knew at that moment that this was no accident. We actually saw the plane bank and turn into the, into the Trade Center. You know, when we look back at 9-11, we remember, I think, the uncertainty of the morning, um, a lot of confusion. There was uncertainty about how, how big the plane was, uh, whether it was whether the, um, the crash was intentional or not. We just really didn't know. But with all of that confusion, you saw it happen. And so you had a better understanding than almost anybody that morning. We, we knew it was intentional. Um, we, we saw the commercial airliner. And at 8.46 that morning, we knew that all our lives were going to change, that we were going to the biggest fire of our lives. And when you see something like that, it literally takes your breath away. Um, and I got on the radio and I told the dispatcher that a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center and I asked for a second alarm. Almost out of, out of, out of, uh, out of um, normal giving orders. Can you explain what that means, a second alarm? So uh, I was asking for, for um, about 50 firefighters to come to the scene. And that was almost as, as a habit. So a large fire, transmit a multiple alarm, go to the scene. Um, not a lot of thinking took place there. And I told the units I was with to respond with me to the Trade Center. Then I took about 60 seconds to collect my thoughts and to think. And I remember asking my, myself, what do I need to do right now? And I got on the radio again, and this time I told the dispatcher that it appeared as if the plane was aiming for the building. Those were my exact words. And now I asked for a third alarm assignment. So now I'm asking for 100 firefighters, and I gave specific orders where I wanted them to stage. So in the beginning, it's the difference between intuitive thinking where, um, where I was reacting to the incident I saw, and then more analytical. What do I need to do, and how do I start to, to build a command structure? So you've called for even more firefighters now. Where are you at this point? Uh, you know, how, how near the World Trade Center are you? So we were only um, a dozen blocks away, so we moved quickly to the World Trade Center. And um, we, we walked into the, into the building. And I knew as, as I walked into the building, I saw two people badly burned. But I knew I was the, the highest ranking officer. And I had to step past those people. My job was not to take care of them. I had other people coming in that were going to take good care of their, their burns. As I walked into the lobby, I was, I was also met by the fire safety director. And they, he was telling me that the fire was somewhere above the 78th floor. Um, so at that point, I went over to the fire command station and, and firefighters started to come in. And they came in quietly. There wasn't a lot of talking. Every firefighter that went into the building knew that they were going to a dangerous job. And they came in. And, um, and I remember one lieutenant coming up to me 
and not saying a word. And we looked at each other with a concern on our face. Hey, are you going to be okay? And um, I turned to that lieutenant as I turned to the, the other fire officers that came in, and I gave them the order to go up to the 70th floor. I thought eight floors was going to be a good measure of safety. And actually, the, the fire was, was in, the, in the 90s. I said, go upstairs. Take your firefighters. Take your unit. Go upstairs and evacuate the people to let you pass. Tell them to keep going. Um, and then we'll gather on the 70th floor and rescue those that, that can't get out. And that lieutenant, as others quietly took their, their unit, and they started to climb the narrow stairs of the World Trade Center. And they did simple things like encouraging people to keep going. Don't stop. You can make it out of here. And we know from eyewitnesses that made it out, those words of encouragement made, everything, made a big difference. Um, because they kept going. They said, the firefighters told us to keep going. Uh, kind of ordinary things, um, but th those things that meant so much to people that day. So at this point, what are your, I guess, major concerns? Now that you're at the World Trade Center, you're inside the building that has already been hit, what, um, you know, what's your mission, so to speak? Our concerns were really two, to, to um, get people to continue to evacuate the building, to keep moving down, and then to rescue those that, that could not get out. Um, but it takes a long time, because the, all the elevators were out. So it takes a long time to climb. Uh, it, it takes for anywhere from a minute to two minutes per floor, especially when you're carrying 70 pounds of equipment. So, so you don't move that quickly. And that day, time was moving quick. Things were happening very, very fast. About 17 minutes after the first plane hit, we heard another loud roar of a plane coming in very fast. And this time the plane hit the South Tower. Now we have two buildings on fire. And we have th thousands of people who are in, in their, their greatest moment of need. And what we did, we, we huddled like a football team. We got the chiefs that were in, in command to, to gather in the, in the lobby. And we split. Half went to the South Tower. And, and half, like myself, stayed in the North Tower. And we started this, this rescue operation. Um, but again, things were moving very quickly that day. At 9.37 that morning, uh, we were getting reports of a third plane coming. Um, and that, that plane was actually the plane that hit the Pentagon. So as you can see, it takes a long time to climb a 110-story building and things happening in rapid succession. Um, and things only got worse as, as we went on. Yeah, at that moment, you know, given the tension between the time it takes to climb that many floors, um, 
and really the time pressures associated with being in this um, this emergency, this you know absolute emergency. How are you trying to balance? I guess urging your firefighters on to save lives, uh, what they do, right, and also being cognizant of the risks of trying to go too fast. Firefighters will push themselves to the limit um, because that's what we do. Um, and I, I know that as a unit, they, they would have to move together and they would create their own balance of how fast they move. But my concern was for their safety. So that, that morning, we, um, we called a lot of battalion chiefs to the scene. Um, the rank I was at, 23 battalion chiefs responded that morning. And their job was to keep the firefighters safe. Um, unfortunately, that was the most dangerous rank that day. Only four of us survived. Um, but you can see from those numbers the concern we had for, for the safety. What we didn't understand and what we couldn't imagine was that at, um, at 9.59 that morning that an entire high-rise building would collapse to the ground which was happened. The second tower that was hit, the South Tower, um, collapsed very rapidly. And you're in the lobby of the first tower to have been hit. I'm sure from, you know, from a particular standpoint, from a planning perspective, that's the right place to have been. Uh, that's the right place to have sort of had your command post. But are you thinking uh, at this point of, you know, the danger of collapse or weighing whether you should be maybe setting up someplace else? When you, it, you talk about a, a possible collapse of a high-rise building, well, there was n no history of that. Sure. Um, even though there's been big fires uh, in the United States and ac across the world, um, there was no experience of an entire building uh, collapsing. So that wasn't in our consciousness. What we were, we were concerned about was a number of floors collapsing. But we never thought that a, a building built of very heavy metal and steel and concrete uh, would, would collapse. But then one did, right? The South Tower did collapse. How did that change things? When we were commanding the North Tower and those, are the, those firefighters within the tower throughout the building, we heard a loud roar. Um, if you ever stood underneath a train trestle and a train's coming overhead, that's what it sounds like. You hear a roar and it gets louder and louder and then fades out. Um, at that moment, we had no idea that that loud roar was a building collapsing. Um, we weren't in a spot to see it and actually no one told us. So those that were watching it on TV had more situational awareness than what we had. The question is, how do you make a decision based on information of just a loud roar. And I, I, I can remember um, being in the, in the lobby and hearing that sound 
And for a second, not knowing what it meant, but in the second second, I turned to the people I was with and, and pushed them that we had to move. And we moved from where we were standing in the lobby to, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 feet away and around a little corner. And that part of the decision-making is going back to the intuitive part of the brain or the, the instinct or uh, what's re re referred to by some as, as, as fast thinking. Um, the brain operates very quickly and, you, and almost on an uh, unconscious level, you're processing a lot of information. And that sound was like something was collapsing. And I thought it was the elevators or maybe part of the plane was falling into the lobby. And I, and I knew we had to move. So within literally one or two seconds, had to make a decision and we moved very, very quickly. Those of us that moved fast um, were able to survive. Uh, those that took time um, got hit from some of the debris uh, from the South Tower. So now that you move from the lobby out of the building, um, does that now change uh, uh, the mission at all? So when we moved, we went and then the entire lobby goes black from, from the, the dust and the debris so that you can't even see the hand in front of your face. And some of the chiefs I were with, actually ones that had stars on the collar who, was, who were in command that I reported to, um, was saying, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And that was a good decision because they knew that if we can't see that we're in this complete darkness, you can't command. But I knew how to get out of this building. I was in this building hundreds of times, and I knew how to get out. So that wasn't my concern. So what that allowed me to do was to switch from the intuitive part of, of the brain to the analytical part. And I took about 60 seconds and asked myself the same question that I asked earlier. What do we need to do now? I know how to get out, but what do we need to do now? And I turned to my superiors and I, I told them, well, if we're getting out of here, we have to evacuate our firefighters from the building. And I got on the radio and I said, command to all units in Tower One, evacuate the building. And that message was, was passed up, relayed up. Now you would think that's an obvious decision, but by not knowing what took place and only having the rumbling sound and darkness, um, that decision had to be made. And the gravity of this decision was tremendous. I said that we were now leaving the building with hundreds of people still trapped. And it's something that the fire department, we don't do. But we knew that something was wrong. 
And that's why that decision to say we got to pull back and regroup uh, was made. So you've you've now mentioned two times, um, referenced two times when you when you said you you know you just took a beat when you took sixty seconds um, to really think deliberately, but you've also mentioned decisions that you made that were instinctive. Uh, this is something that I think uh, your experience shares with those of some of the guests we've featured uh, who have told uh, stories about combat. So so let me ask then. Um, how do you know? How do you know when it's time to think, uh, act, make decisions, uh, and, and lead instinctively, uh, and when it's time to to do all of those things slower and more uh, intentionally? I think it's the ability to switch back and back and forth, which is the key. So, as we were uh, evacuating the building, we moved across a bridge that connected the World Trade Center to the World Financial Center over West Street. And we wound up standing underneath this, this uh, walkway bridge. And this was a, a bridge that, that uh, would eventually collapse. And I remember standing underneath the bridge. And I tried to use those two, two ways of thinking. Um, uh, that intuitive part of the brain really is, is based on experience. Can I match anything from the past? And I remember looking out and seeing dust. And I thought, um, as normal, that behind the smoke and the dust, there's always a building. Um, we didn't realize, ev even at that time, that, the, uh, that the, the South Tower collapsed. So I tried to use the intuitive part of the brain, matching experiences from the past, and came up with nothing. So I switched to the analytical part. I hit 20 years into the fire department by then, um, and I, I could have retired uh, uh, six days earlier, so you talk about decision-making. <laughs> but um, I tried to think my way through it, and I was coming up with nothing. So here's a, and, and imagine the clock is running out, ticking away. There was only 29 minutes between collapse of the building, and most of that was used up by walking back and forth. Um, and then I remember standing there, and I was with um, a number of people. And I remember standing there and then getting a cold chill running down my spine. And I turned to the people I was with and I told them, we got to go. And we walked up to the corner of North and West Street, or, or Vesey, Vesey and West Street, which was opposite the, the North Tower. But this is the, the question you were asking, how do you know what part of the brain or part of the thinking to use? And it's really the ability to switch between the intuitive and analytical thinking and not being um, caught up with just one. Um, it, it's trusting, trusting your instinct to move um, quickly or to take action. And if we don't trust that, certainly if I didn't trust that, I wouldn't be, be here today. But it's also taking a step back and to be able to think, well, what do I need to do next? 
and being able to switch between the two, I, I, I think, is 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 critical for for people that have to make decisions uh, during a, um, a crisis, during life and death situations. What about leadership? Did your experiences um, on that day, on 9/11, influence the way that you maybe conceptualize leadership? To give you an example, um, what happened that day um, was after the collapse of both buildings, and we, we knew we lost many people, that um, we had to regroup. Um, and that's difficult because we lost, we lost our command staff. We lost our chief of department, some of um, our staff chiefs, chiefs with stars on their collars. Um, and firefighters were coming in from home, and those of us that survived, we gathered around a burnt-out fire truck. And one of the chiefs that I was with in the lobby um, got up on that fire truck, and he did something different. He said to us that we had to, uh, he asked us to remove our helmets. Now we don't remo we don't remove our helmets. Our helmets has um, our, our rank, has our badge number. It has um, the soot from every fire we've ever went to. It, it's the identity of who we are. And he says, "No, no, no. I want you to to um, remove your helmets and let's have a moment of silence because we lost a lot of people, and we did." And then the chief, the deputy chief, asked us to put on our helmets. And in that action of, of putting the helmets back on, he took command and, and it demonstrated his leadership in an extreme situation. That not only do you have to address the problems and to think through things we have never seen before, but also had to reach the hearts of people that knew they lost um, their, their, their fellow firefighters and lost many people in the building. Um, but that action of uh, putting the helmet back on and having a, a moment before that of silence reestablished command. And there was a lot for us to do um, that morning. If in that act, uh, that act asking all of you to take off your helmets and then to put them back on, if in that act he took command, what effect did it have on the rest of you? You, you felt um, a sense of unity that, that um, no matter how bad this is, we're going to uh, we're going to move ahead, and we're going to move ahead together. We knew we had rescues to be made. We knew we had to fight fires that actually burned for for four months. Um, but in that moment, it was like we're not alone. We're, we're going to be able to do this together. Is there anything else when you? Uh, look back at 9-11 when you sort of uh, reflect on your experiences that day as you are now. Is there anything else that it's taught you about 
decision making or, or leadership under stress? I think decision making is is um, is connected to leadership. Um, certainly, if I'm making a decision by myself, um, I don't want to get hit with a building, or I don't want to get shot. Um, that's one thing, and um, but making decisions for others, for people that we 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 uh, command or, or lead. Um, is different, and uh, I would say that during during a crisis, w what we do as as leaders is that we not only do command and control, and and um, many people have talked about about that, but we do something else. What we do is we connect, we collaborate, and we coordinate, and and that's the leadership moment. When we're able to pull, pull that together, giving orders is only part of it. Um, as an event evolves and, and definitely expands, one of the first things we do is we hastily form networks, um, different communication networks, um, and connecting to other pieces of, of, of of uh, data and uh, communications, so I, I, I would say communications is is a function of receiving voice, video, and data. So we 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 think of communications as just talking on a radio. Well, that's one part. But on 9/11, I would have loved to have seen a video. I would have loved to have seen what what you saw. Um, so I, I think as we move forward, it, it's gathering, um, gathering videos. Let me see that 10-second clip. Um, it's also about gather, gathering data. Now with our smartphones, we're able to pull data from, from various people. Um, and we add to that census, especially when we're talking about... Uh, uh, CBRN events, so so leadership is making these connections, making these connections um, of of different networks. Then it's about collaboration. So in uh, in my world is it's is firefighters, police officers, and and uh, ambulance and medical folks. We have to collaborate. How are we going to deal with this large disaster, a, a terrorist event like 9/11, or a, a the, the hurricanes that, that that we've seen recently? How do we work together? Um, which co comes down to leveraging or aligning core competencies or our ability to to uh, coordinate. Um, and I think that's the challenge of leadership. We have systems on managing events and, and incident management and, and, uh, um, and various other systems for command. But it's the, those abilities to connect, collaborate, and coordinate, I, I think, is the key. And, and the future of leadership when we're operating in, in a network world. Well, 
Chief Eifer, I want to thank you for taking some time to tell uh, tell us the story uh, of your experiences that day and, and to share a little about how you think about, you know, emergencies and crisis situations, decision making um, under stressful conditions and, and, and leadership. Uh, so thank you. I'm glad to be here. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. One quick thing before you go. If you're listening to The Spear and have enjoyed the episode so far, we would really love it if you would give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us reach new listeners. All right, thanks again. 